Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco. Today I'm talking to Arthur Sinodinas, who is now chair and a partner at the Asia Group, Washington DC based. Welcome, Arthur. Hi, James. Great to be with you again. All right. Now, we don't uh, really need to introduce you, but I will very quickly. You'd have to say a storied career, but 10 years as chief of staff within John Howard's office when he was prime minister, you were obviously a senator for New South Wales and more recently have been ambassador to the US during a period of great tumult. So tell me now that you've left that Washington DC job and you've taken a new position at the Asia Group. Just talk us through what you're doing now. Yeah, thanks, James. Well, when I finished up at the embassy in March, I didn't really have a particular career trajectory in mind. It wasn't as if I was going to come back to a particular job or a particular occupation in a sense. And for family reasons, we thought we should stay in DC. I've got a son at university there and my wife likes some of the opportunities there. So I started to think, well, okay, what should I do? And I had some corporate offers, but in the end, I went with a group called Asia Group, which does strategic advising to companies that want to invest or develop business in the Indo-Pacific. And they have uh, offices in India, in Vietnam, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Japan, where part of my job is to set up an Australian practice. So they advise clients on how to navigate the sort of regulatory and policy environment, understand the geopolitical trends are impacting on them. We have a research and analytical department that looks at the US-China relationship, what's happening there. We're looking at the evolving legislation, other rules that are being put in place which are impacting on traditional trade investment relationships and which are also encouraging the development of new supply chains. And this is one of the biggest developments in the world today. And the other thing that's happening is we're finding the confluence between traditional economic approaches and industrial policy approaches. And James, in a sense, it's bringing you and I back to those issues of industry policy and innovation that you know we've discussed over the years. And all of a sudden, as Paul Keating would have said, every galah in the pet shop is talking about industrial policy. And in the US, industrial policy is no longer a dirty word. It's become, in some ways, the term de jour. It basically describes what Biden economics is about. It describes what uh, the Europeans are trying to do, and it actually locks into the whole geopolitical issues that we're seeing emerge, particularly in this part of the world. It's quite extraordinary. In your long biography, I failed to mention that, yes, of course, you're a cabinet minister and were minister for industry and science at the time. Indeed. So, okay, we've got a lot to talk about. I started this conversation with three dot points, AUKUS, the quad, ITAR, and as we've been talking, I've jotted down a few more, semiconductors, batteries, critical minerals. I mean, there's simply a lot to get to, and you're quite right. The industry policy has come back to the fore, and we're seeing competition among nations in the industry policies that they they put forward to build their domestic supply chains. So why don't we start with a praises of where we're at with AUKUS, the U.S. relationship, 
given that we've got 2024 election coming up, there's the strangeness around Donald Trump and his campaign, an indictment today, not to date this podcast. So what's a snapshot? Can you do it a snapshot? Well, I think to begin with the context, I mean, Australia and America being brought ever closer together. The strategic circumstances in the region are sort of putting us closer together, bringing us closer together, encouraging us to do more together, both in the defence and security realm, but also more broadly in terms of our diplomacy in the region and in terms of our economic and trade engagement with each other and with the region. That's the context. It's creating a whole slew of new opportunities for Australia as a trusted ally and partner. So if you look at AUKUS, for example, while that's a a sort of defence capability pact done properly with tech transfer and information sharing, it gives us an unrivaled access to the US technology industrial base, along with the UK and Canada. And this would put us in a position, I think, to help transform Australia's own technology industrial base. And I think the ball is in our court. So there's a lot of interest in industry, both here and in the US, about how governments will bring all those elements of AUKUS together and make sure that Pillar 1, the subs pillar, and Pillar 2, which is the advanced capabilities, all the critical and emerging techs, AI, machine learning, quantum, cyber, hypersonics, electronic warfare, etc., that all of them are put on a pathway to development and adoption, and indeed on an accelerated pathway given the strategic circumstances that we face. So AUKUS is potentially a big opportunity in its own right. The Quad leaders meeting, apart from anything else, is auspicing cooperation in areas of critical and emerging technology as well. An important part of it is investing in the next generation of STEM scholars, particularly at the graduate level. Eric Schmidt from Google, ex-CEO of Google, and Smith Futures are managing a program on behalf of the Quad partners in this context. And there's a lot of other areas of tech cooperation occurring in that context, telecommunications space and all the rest of it. So the world is changing around us very quickly and it's giving us opportunities that I wouldn't have expected a few years ago because of this confluence between economics and national security. And then you overlay the clean energy transition and the critical minerals part of that as well, which is important for electric vehicles. Critical minerals are also important for defence purposes. Another area where Western countries want to reduce their dependence on China. And you have a slew of these new opportunities opening up. So it's a bit like there's an open goal line. And the challenge for us as a country is, are we match fit? Are we competitive to get the job done? So the opportunities are all there. The challenge is, in terms of our productivity, in terms of how we do industrial policy to make sure that we're prioritizing the right sectors and that we're investing as governments in the right parts of the supply chain to facilitate the sort of developments that are going on. There's a lot to unpack in that. So when you talk about governments are focusing on the right parts of the supply chain and the right areas of competitive advantage for Australia, so I don't want you to rate the current government, but it's not straightforward, is it? Because there are a huge number of opportunities. You can't do everything. So even when we're talking about critical minerals or the production of batteries, the US wants our critical minerals, but it also wants its manufacturing base as well. So how do you get into a supply chain where Australia is doing more value add, but still participating in that geostrategic supply chain you talked about? Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is a complex balance. 
there are economic forces which will determine the long-term sustainability of any of this, commercial viability. What you're seeing at the moment is, I suppose, a repeat of some of the industry arguments we've had in the past about helping industries to get off the ground. So for governments, it's really looking, well, what are the areas where there are impediments? And are those impediments because of the long timeframes for some of these investments? Are the impediments regulatory or policy-wise? Is it to do with market access? So you've got to hone your instruments to address the particular distortion or challenge that you face. A lot of it is also about, and you and I have discussed this before, the risk appetite of government. Because when you invest, you'll be accused of picking winners, right? Now, you can pick trends, you can pick attributes, you can pick sectors where you think or which you think are foundational to the development of of industry. But this does involve making decisions and choices and their opportunity costs to that. But having an appetite as governments to take risk, to accept that some investments will succeed, others will fail, and being able to defend that is an important mindset. In Israel, they expect people to fail. As long as they learn from failure, they can pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and move on. And I think in Australia, it's making sure governments lead by example in terms of the tone is set from the top, having risk appetite, having a capacity for governments to act as markets and as incubators for new industries and new investments is important. Yes, sure. Of course, there are going to be challenges in that. And of course, we want market forces to do the maximum they can. One of the great advantages of a market sort of system is that we understand the cost of capital, right, compared to other systems. And in fact, I've got a mini thesis on this, which I won't go into now, but I think one of the big differences between non-market systems and market systems is that in market systems, we understand the cost of capital, and that drives efficiency. It drives improvement in non-market systems where the cost of capital is discounted. That can be the road to ruin, but I won't go into all of that today. But my point being that, yes, use market forces, but understand that government can play a role. But government has to understand that it plays a role in the context of markets and how to develop markets. It's not a role that is somehow separate to that or in some way supersedes the role of markets. In terms of what the current government is doing, I think the focus on a number of priority areas in the National Reconstruction Fund is the right way to go. You can't do everything. You've got to identify sectors where you believe Australia can have either a niche or comparative advantage. And the reality is, because of our size, we can't do everything. We've got to select sectors. But if I look at the opportunities coming out of the big investment in defense that we're making as a country, there are big spin-offs to come from that. There will be big spin-offs, potentially tech-wise, from the clean energy transition, because we're a country which faces particular challenges, given our fossil fuel structure. We've got to bridge the gap and make the transition without turning the lights off. But that also means, along the way, being very innovative about how we use clean tech. And then there's the huge, you alluded to this before, critical mineral sector, where we have a lot to offer the world. And the challenge we face is, in commercial terms, what role can we play in the processing of critical minerals? How far up the value chain do we go? Because the challenge there is for electric vehicles, for example, the end users, particularly the automobile manufacturers, they want to control as much of the supply chain as possible. And where possible, therefore, have the supply chain as close to them as possible. Now, we're not going to be able to develop an EV industry and recreate the car industry. That's a challenge in today's world, right, given scale and everything else that we face. But there are areas where 
government working with industry can identify going up the value chain in critical minerals. There's a lot of work going on in semiconductors around the world. Now, we're not necessarily going to be an end-to-end semiconductor fabricator and producer, but you talk to Cathy Foley, the chief scientist, there are niche areas of semiconductors where Australia can play an important and positive role. And therefore, part of what it is is this creative engagement between science, government, and industry to get things done. And my big beef is that I think on the commercial side of it, that's the side of it I think Australia still needs to do more. As I mentioned before, it is about risk appetite. It's about corporates, particularly big corporates, who are otherwise you know, feeling pretty good. They're making good profits in Australia. Why chance your arm or whatever? How do we get that sort of innovation mentality across more of industry? A lot of corporates will tell you that they innovate in a day-to-day sense, but this is really talking about how do we do that broader innovation that creates new industries that are the foundational industries of the future. Okay, a lot to unpack there. Can I just ask, I've just been reflecting, since your time as industry minister, I think that was 2016-17, thereabouts, there has been quite incredible progress in Australia in some of the smaller startup deep tech software areas, right? So just wondering if you can reflect just on your time as minister then and then having arrived back here and had a look around, I completely take your point on corporates, perhaps not kind of smashing away at new-to-the-world innovation in the way that startups are, but what have you found when you've come back? Look, I think your central thesis is right, that compared to, say, a few years ago, I think there is a really thriving startup and ecosystem in Australia. I think it is becoming self-sustaining. Look, I think there are still challenges about venture capital and making sure that that's appropriately scaled for what the potential is of the country. The great challenge I faced when I was industry minister, to be honest, is that I was lumbered with previous budget decisions around cutting the R&D tax incentive and everything else. And even though we were doing things to implement the National Innovation and Science Agenda, these sorts of budget things sort of really loomed over everything else. And it undercut the rhetoric of what we were trying to promote. And once that was removed subsequently, under the previous government and then sort of, uh, I think, further under this government. That was important to sort of send a signal to industry there's going to be stability. We've strengthened, if anything, the R&D tax incentives. They're there. They're important. They send a signal about what we value in terms of innovation in Australia. I think setting up that policy architecture and giving that certainty has been an important development, in my view, in the time since I was minister. And I think The other thing that's happened is that the supply chains that are opening up around the world, particularly in areas of critical and emerging technology, provide us with natural markets to play into if we are match fit and competitive. Yeah, just as an observer, yes, I think there was before the NISA, before the National Innovation Science Agenda, and there was after the National Innovation Science Agenda. And I think it did have a big impact. It took a long time. Yeah, it took a bit of time to play out, but certainly did. Yeah. And we might see the same with the National Reconstruction Fund, that we'll wait and see the impact of that. So let me ask you, we were talking about markets before and the uh, criticality of relying on market pricing of, of capital, that sort of thing. So the Inflation Reduction Act is a massive market intervention by the US government to encourage manufacturers to come back and uh, set up shop back in the US. And the NRF in Australia, the National Reconstruction Fund, is also a market intervention, albeit vastly differently structured. Just as a top line, is the NRF enough to keep 
manufacturers who might be tempted to head over to the US. Are we at a scale where that's a kind of a match-for-match industrial policy? Look, you're right. And this is a bit the elephant in the room. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act is a massive investment, $360, $370 billion worth into clean energy technology and breakthroughs and EV and related things. The great thing about it was that because of the free trade provisions, which were very much an American sort of thing, it wasn't pushed by us or others on them necessarily, but it was something I think they recognized they needed to do. The free trade provisions mean that we can play into it as suppliers. But it's true. If you're an enterprise around the world, you will look at the scale of the credits and subsidies available there, and you'll make your calculations. But, and I think President Biden would be the first to say this, and he has, in fact, I think, said it to Prime Minister Albanese, that while sure, you can talk about potential distortions in the market because of the size of that incentive compared to other incentives that countries can offer. But the reality is the prize or the pie is so big there's a lot there for everybody. And what the Americans are really arguing is that they see what they're doing as not only good for them, but also encouraging the rest of the world to step up. And we're seeing it have an impact in Europe. We're seeing it have an impact in Japan and in Korea. And it's having an impact in Australia. It's making us think further about sharpening our incentives and about how we play a complementary role. But as it relates to the decisions of individual companies, yeah, sure. There will be cases where companies might decide it's better to invest over there because of the size of what's going on. But my point is there are plenty of opportunities to invest here and there are plenty of resources, particularly critical minerals, which make that a really viable opportunity. So what we need to be looking at or looking for is how we complement what's happening over there. And I think there are huge complementarities. And Australia has a, a big advantage in being a free trade partner of the US in that regard. Okay, uh, talking to Arthur Sinodinus, the former ambassador to the US and current chair at the Asia Group's Australia practice. Arthur, I hope this isn't getting too down in the weeds, but it's such a massive point. When we talk about AUKUS Pillar 2 and all those technologies where Australia has some genuine game, in very recent days, we've heard about ITAR restrictions in Australia. That's international trade in arms regulations. There being a carve out for Australia as part of the AUKUS arrangements. Now, I mean, that seems like a double-edged sword in some ways. It's a weird regulation. I wonder if you can talk us through that and how that might play out with those dual-use technologies like artificial intelligence, the quantum, the quantum sensing, and all of those things. Yeah. Look, I don't think it's getting down the weeds. I think you're getting to the real substance of one of the big benefits that can come out of AUKUS, which is if we can streamline the export controls and the international trafficking in arms regulations and create the sort of exemptions that are being contemplated in legislation now before the Congress, which would put us on a par with Canada and the UK, that would be a big fillip to the integration, the interchangeability of our tech industrial base with that of the US and of the UK. So I wouldn't underplay what's at play here. The sort of exemption we're looking for is a full country exemption And that would give a lot of certainty to Australians that if they play in the American environment or vice versa, they can transfer technology, they can transfer information. It should make it easier to innovate together and it provides potentially a great platform. To your point about dual use, actually provides a great platform for capabilities that are developed in the defence industry context to also be rolled out for other uses. And indeed, the AUKUS construct, some ministers in Australia 
always talked about the AUKUS construct having a capacity to roll on from defence to more non-defence applications in due course. And in fact, as you know, it's in the nature of these technologies that you can't put a cap on what they can be used for potentially. The more foundational ones like AI, machine learning, quantum, etc. So it's a big prize and a lot to play for. Yeah, we'll be watching that very closely. Look, I'm going to draw this to a close, and I suppose we've sort of come full circle because I know that the US is a very close relationship and it would take a lot to ruffle feathers in that relationship. But there has to be some concern that AUKUS and all of the things that we've been talking about are such high stakes that if there was a return to Donald Trump or something like Donald Trump, you would have to be concerned. Yeah. Look, I think that's an important question. A lot of people in Canberra asked that question when I was here last year on my consultations as ambassador. And a lot of people in Europe asked the same question. I remember um, a couple of years ago being at a meeting of the JP Morgan National Council in DC, and their council includes Tony Blair. And that was the first question he was asked about the reliability of the US as a partner if circumstances change. From our perspective, I think it's important to remember some history, which is not just the history of the relationship between the two countries, but in the Trump era, even though Trump was initially focused on the trade aspects of competition with China, his national security people started to re-engineer policy towards China. And what's essentially happened is that the Biden administration is built on that foundation. So my thesis is that the return of a Republican administration or even a Trump administration would not necessarily upend the direction of policy towards China. I think the challenge we faced in the Trump era was the treatment of allies and partners. And I think the way some of them were treated weakened the Western alliance as a whole. The return of a Trump administration or a Republican administration would raise some questions about the US in the Russia-Ukraine context. But I think in the context of the Indo-Pacific, and also given that Trump himself quite likes Australia, uh, he has no beefs with Australia. Of course, we have a trade deficit with the US, so from that point of view, he quite likes us. But he has other reasons to like Australia. So from that perspective, the alliance, I don't think, would fall over. The challenge we face is that a change of administration bringing to power someone who may be less popular in Australian eyes does raise questions about how the alliance would be perceived in the eyes of some Australians. Arthur Sinodinus, thank you very much for joining us on the Commercial Disco. Always great to talk to you and very glad that you'll be coming back and forth to Australia from Washington. Thanks for the opportunity. Always good to talk to you, James, and thanks for what you do for innovation in Australia. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation and public policy, visit innovationoz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.